0: Let's see. Are we here? Yeah, I think we're we're going. Cool. So this is uh, Etienne Perret, and he is on our first attempt at a podcast.
1: This is the first? Yeah. No. Yeah,
0: this is going to be the first one. Oh, cool. And the reason I actually wanted you on the first podcast is because in a weird way, or maybe not so weird, you are the reason why my family's here to begin with. Because you put an ad in some newspaper, and you can probably tell me... Boston Globe. Okay. And Dad saw it. Yeah. He was living in Belmont at the time, and he responded to it. I don't know how he responded to it, but I know eventually he made his way up here.
1: Probably telephone.
0: Okay, so he called you. (laughs) Awesome. And, And within what, like six months... He was up working for you, or how fast do you do you remember? I don't know how
1: fast he could have come any time. It was just how long it took him to take care of things back home in Belmont.
0: He closed a jewelry store down there, and then he moved. uh, And then there was a period of time where he was uh, coming up here, but he didn't actually move the family up. But he would like stay at the Lord Camden Inn or one of these apartments. Uh, near your store and do you know do a few days on and a few days off anyway so eventually he moved uh, us up here and um didn't end up working for you for a very long time after that I don't think but uh but that's really the reason that we're here which is funny so in a way like my whole life is situated in Camden because of you (laughs) <laughs> it's a weird thing, yeah, it's a weird yeah. thing to think about. And it goes back
1: quite a few years,
0: yeah, so um, so what brought you to Camden?
1: I came here with my high school sweetheart, um her uncle had left Connecticut to be up here, and she had a summer job up here, and I went with her and then she left and went to California, and I came back and Never left.
0: So you were from Connecticut originally? Yeah. Okay. What part of Connecticut? Greenwich. Oh, okay. Uh,
1: yeah. My father was one of the commuters to New York, and I knew that I did not want to be part of that commuter crowd to Wall Street.
0: Mm. So he was on Wall Street?
1: No. No, he would commute into Grand Central and then take the subway out to Brooklyn. Oh, jeez. It was an hour and a half each way.
0: Yeah. And what did he do?
1: chemist okay
0: and so you you grew up with a um, technician or a scientist uh, father
1: yeah scientist artist
0: father. Art, artist what did he do with art
1: um he did all sorts of sculpture mostly sculpture
0: really um what material
1: uh whatever he felt like okay um you never knew what he was going to pick up and uh I mean, that was the beginning of the jewelry in that in the wood shop up on the shelf, I found a piece of silver wire.
0: I see. Okay. So you're, you are you grew up in a house where design um, existed. I mean, you kind of intuited that.
1: Yeah. Our house was designed by my mother's cousin, who was a partner of Marcel Breuer. Okay. So it was a flat roof uh, glass house.
0: Okay. And, uh, and then the, the objects in the house also had some kind of uh, design element because your dad was actually sculpting them.
1: That and the items in the house that I just took for granted um, were Bauhaus uh, design chairs or it, it was just the stuff in the house. I didn't realize till I grew up that uh, uh, not everybody had that stuff.
0: So that kind of gets me like thinking, you know, where I wanted to take some of the conversation to was this notion of design. And obviously in your career and the school choice, you know, the choice of school that you went to and then in the career that you made for yourself, um, I think, and we could talk about it probably in different ways, but design or form or like putting an idea into um, material shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of drove you for a very long time.
1: Yeah, it seemed to me that certain ways things are put together, both functionally and visually, just made sense. That's the way there's they should be using those materials. And so much of the world isn't like that, that uh, I wanted to make and sh- share what others made that made sense to me.
0: So what do you see when you see something well put together? I mean, besides the, you know, all I could figure out how it was made, but I mean, what are you actually seeing when you see something well put together?
1: Um, for me, there's a piece in it. It, it just makes sense. It's uh, There's a comfort in it where if something's badly put together, it just gives me the creeps.
0: All right. So <laughs> <laughs>
1: you may remember stories about that.
0: Uh, that would make sense. Yeah, that would make sense. Given, I mean, there's a certain amount of quality that you have to bring when you're producing goods for sale. But then there's something b- beyond that, I guess. Um, you know, if you were going to call a piece of jewelry designer jewelry or if you were going to, you know, or, or anything, architecture or, you know, furniture, whatever, then it has to not only meet certain quality specifications, but also, I don't know, there's got to be some kind of soul there. That brings about that piece you're talking about?
1: Sure. Um, well, there's, there's so many aspects to a meaningful piece of jewelry, but strictly from the design standpoint, it has to function well for the purpose that it's intended. Um, wearing a ring to an opera could be very different than making a ring for a mountain climber
0: sure sure um so uh and what i wanted for from this podcast was the um to talk to people in town and not only in town but in the whole mid-coast region and i'm going to be defining what that is i guess through experience really there's google says one thing and some people want to be a part of mid-coast maine that aren't there's this whole controversy about it but um, but I just wanted to talk to people that lived here, um, and who have made a living here as well, uh, to, in a very kind of casual way, in a, re- a relaxed way, you know, in, in a way that's not, um, like a strict interview for a news organization or, uh, like an, an advertisement or a marketing space, you know? So, um, because I don't know, I feel like part of. My experience in the last six months with COVID and with um, just seeing people being cut off from each other in so many ways, and then also with the political situation that's going on right now. Um, I don't know. I I felt the need to personally want to reach out, but then to also like share that experience of reaching out in in a very casual. Um, Laid-back setting um, with other people, so that was kind of the whole reason that I, you know, wanted this. Um, so I really appreciate you coming on to to do that.
1: Sure, I I think it's fun, and I think uh, I'm glad to be your guinea pig <laughs> and uh, help you in this process of getting there. I think um, sharing one's thoughts are is a a skill that needs to be practiced and learned and uh the fact that you're putting the energy into this is exciting
0: do you um you've at least to me you've always seemed to be somewhat of a provocateur in um in in this town this town can be pretty buttoned up sometimes um or at least it has a it has that feel sometimes and you've been willing to push things to the edge what why do you feel the need to do that or why do you like to do that
1: I feel that I'm way far back from the edge but I do um, think that people get too settled into a place in their minds and um, my nature is to um, as you say provocateur provoke people into thinking more, um, my nature is when people everybody says things are this way. I tend to say, "Really? Have now, you looked at it from this side?"
0: Do you do that um, thinking that the other side is is correct, or do you do that simply because there's a kind of a herd um, shift to to one you know one way or the other? I think I.
1: Will do it to any group that is set so um firmly in their beliefs that um, and that's the function of an artist an art a true piece of art is something that makes you see the world in a different way. It's not just a pretty painting it it makes you say, "Huh, I never looked at it that way.
0: I had a piece um a, a piece of art that I really liked in the National uh Gallery of Art down in Washington DC that sort of it was a little on the nose because it, the the piece of art's called Objectivity and it's the word objectivity spelled out like five times but it's a three-dimensional piece of art and so the they're at different levels each of the different like letter groups are at different levels. And so if you see it from the side, it's all, you know, very, um, based on your perspective, right? I mean, that's the idea. If you're looking at it straight on, it looks like a newspaper. Uh, but if you're looking at it from the side, it's, it's very, uh, it's very, um, distorted. And, and so, yeah, so that one is super on the nose, but I mean, it gets the point across that, you know, it, Sometimes people only approach things from their comfort, uh, comfort uh, zone, I guess their comfort level, and they don't want to. Well, I guess we just seek comfort, right? In life generally?
1: Yeah, I would say we seek comfort and uh, avoid challenge.
0: And um, so how do you balance that with in your own life in terms of, I guess, um, recognizing the fact that you probably just like the rest of us want to seek a certain amount of comfort and then you feel the need to push other people how do you push yourself
1: well i suspect that i can only um go out and challenge ideas because i live in a position of comfort i I'm married to the same woman for 38 years. Um, We've got the three kids. Uh, We live in a comfortable home on a nice street, (laughs) two blocks from the grocery store, the bank and uh, the post office. There's a huge level of comfort that I know when I get up in the morning um, that my life is going to go a certain way and with that security i can then go and um try and knock over the uh the pins and
0: so do you do you kind of view yourself as kind of like an idol uh an idol smasher in a way
1: i don't really know too much about idols but um
0: Well, you know, like false ideas, um, ideas that, you know, may look good on the surface, but then deep down um, turn out to be pretty uh, baseless.
1: Yeah, I think not only I think I do and I think um, I have to look at myself sometimes whether I'm doing it for being the sake of being an idol smasher or. Whether I'm doing it because I think in the long run it's better for the community, if uh, they know the truth.
0: So, how long have you lived in this town now?
1: Since '73, so going on 50 years.
0: So, what are the what are some of the idols or, or how, however you would however I I use that word, but whatever word you'd want to use, like uh, what you know, what are some of these? ideas that aren't of benefit to the community that have like cropped up in the last 50 years that you've had to you felt a need to you know address
1: i don't really see any local issues that that way i think they're more national and global issues um,
0: so you've sort of let the town lie as it is You know you know what i mean like you haven't tried to get involved in like the local skirmishes or anything like that
1: um, not significantly. I mean, you've been on the budget committee and been in the fire department. I don't think those are significant ways of trying to change things.
0: Yeah. So overall then, I mean, you, pr- you could even characterize the town as kind of being a pretty orderly, you know, moderately run experience, kind of like your own house.
1: Yeah. The town is wonderful that way. It's a, uh, this, I'd say, Camden specifically, but the whole area is. Um, when you look at the scariness of the world, it's a safe zone.
0: There's no wars going on here. Hardly. There's no. There's not even any skirmishes.
1: Well, I would say the the biggest war that I see is uh, domestic troubles, some poverty, um, opioid addiction. Substance abuse, those wars. Um, and I don't know if one can get to a place where those wars don't exist. You
0: were, you've you been involved in the Rotary uh, organization? Yeah. Rotarians. Um, did they address some of the issues you just brought up? Yeah, we're really
1: involved with uh, homelessness and um, hunger. Um, big supporters of New Hope for Women, um, we have a diverse membership that is involved in a lot of the nonprofits that um, try and make the community a better place, and uh, beyond the community, even overseas, um, helping with hunger there or education.
0: What are the What are the biggest causes here uh, that you found, like right, right locally, uh, in terms of you know those issues like hunger? What What are some of the Uh, causes of that or um do they address it at that level or is it more direct aid
1: it's more direct aid i don't think um we have the time or the the members have the time or the energy to really address um the the troubles in families the uh the poverty in um both knowledge and wealth and, um, the ability of some people to manage their lives, their families in a healthy way. That's a huge problem. And I don't know how to even begin to fix that.
0: So it's neat. Cause you actually, you're taking the same energy that you take to maybe push the envelope with some people on, you know, herd mentality around certain issues. It seems like you're also taking a kind of that similar energy to do, um, to address actual problems, uh, in terms of, you know, direct aid to, you know, folks who might need some help.
1: Sure. Whether it's building a house for habitat or have you been involved in that? Yeah. it's, It's fun being with a group of people building a house.
0: Yeah. Where have you done that? Um,
1: the houses have been in Rockland and Warren.
0: Okay. Oh, that's really cool.
1: And, um, been involved with, uh, I forget what it's called, Ira's group with the um, opioid mm-hmm. addiction, the house in Rockland. Yeah, And uh, there are just so many things that uh, involved with Hospitality House, um, Meals on Wheels. Um,
0: so it seems like, um, I, I recently did this uh, friend experiment on Facebook where I let Google's algorithm, suggest new friends to me. And I clicked, uh, add friend over and over and over and over again. And I did it about 1500 times. And so some people thought I was doing it at random and whether or not you want to call Google, uh, Facebook's algorithm random is, you know, sem- semantics, but they were random to me. They were certainly not people that I, a lot of them were not people that I had ever met in my life
1: they could have been a friend of a friend.
0: They were certainly a friend of a friend. I mean, oftentimes in there, it's, it, it would be like, you know, you have 50 mutual friends. Although once I hit it so many times, then, you know, the 50 mutual friends were people that I didn't know. So by the time I was done hitting 1,500 <coughs> friends, uh, the, the people that I was meeting were halfway around the world. Like I was talking to a guy in um, Ghana last night you know uh-huh. because it was a friend of a friend of a friend and then it got me to god he didn't
1: have gold that he wanted to sell he did.
0: <laughs> no but he wanted to sell uh used iPhones to me oh cool <laughs> and uh and uh and uh, yeah I thought that was neat but we had a neat conversation about about uh, his situation anyway so uh, the reason I bring that up is because and it's the same reason I'm doing this podcast is that I wanted to intersect with the community in a way that I hadn't before. Like I wanted a different cross section of the community because there are thousands of people living in Midcoast Maine. I mean, many thousands that I've never met, that I have no interaction with, that wouldn't necessarily be interested in getting a piece of jewelry made or a piece of jewelry fixed and, um, you know, for, for a variety of reasons. And so I wanted to intersect with the community at a different level. And it's the same thing here. You know, I wanted to, you know, you and I have known each other for years. I probably my earliest memory of you is when I'm something like seven or eight years old going into your fancy jewelry store and, you know, doing something for dad, um, trading, trading between our businesses, something. And, um, but, you know, I've never had a chance to talk to you about the Rotarians or Habitat for Humanity or uh, any of your work on that level. And and it's the same thing with all of these other folks. I, wanted, I want to get a cross-section because for some reason, and I don't know what your experience is with this, but my friend group in this area was pretty small, actually. And, and even my acquaintance group was pretty small. And... And it was, I don't want to say it was in a certain socioeconomic status, but I kind of feel like it was, I kind of feel like, you know, the choices that my parents made and the choices that sort of became part of my experience because of my own upbringing and my schooling and, and all of that, it, it kind of gave me like a floor and a cap Mm -hmm. and that at 36 years old is just something that's not interesting anymore um i mean i i love everyone in that little group uh but life is so much more than that right life is so much um lower than that and life is so much higher than that and and I, i don't just mean socioeconomics but i mean like in in the level of experience or the level of like um human you know human appreciation of like the suffering that people go through or the incredible experiences that people have on, you know, on the other side of suffering.
1: Well, um, back in the day, I used to love to go to public suppers because when you sat down at a table, it was somebody that you probably didn't know already. And it was a group of people that was different than my life normally brought me where,
0: where did you used to go to uh, public suppers
1: um, I remember the fire department was a great place for public suppers okay yeah public suppers at the firehouse were fun um, it was a bunch of people that I didn't know um, basketball games at the high school a whole different group of people that uh didn't know um even joining rotary at first was a group of people that i didn't know
0: did that give you like a wider cross-section of uh people to interact with than you would have encountered in your jewelry store
1: oh of course yeah way different yeah way different and uh never did join the yacht club uh (laughs) <laughs> to uh, get to know that
0: different group of okay. people. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. There are all of these different pockets, and um, it's at least in our our business, my business, it's easy to go under the microscope and stay there. Right. And it's easy to, you know, I mean, I also have small children, so right now everything's about raising the kids. Um, so, it's, but it's easy to get that tunnel vision. But at a certain point, you know, you want to. Um, you, I don't know, you want to grow and touch a different friend base and see, yeah, see what people are dealing with. Because I, I t- I'll tell you, my Facebook feed is crazy now. I mean, it's just an entirely different set of um, problems and solutions to those problems that I was seeing before. Uh, I'm, And again, I mean, a lot of these people are relative strangers, but... Just like anyone else, they're sharing their lives on Facebook and their experiences on Facebook, or a lot of the, a lot of them. And it has it has uh, I'll say this: it has upped the level of human suffering than I, than I was seeing before on my Facebook. You know, I would see things about you know national disasters or international you know um, stories on war in the newspaper, but now I'm seeing it like writ small right there on the Facebook page. And it's a totally different window into the world.
1: Well, if you take Facebook seriously Mm -hmm. and you look at your page or timeline and invite people to participate in that, um, the more people you bring in from different places, the more likely they're going to share different opinions and different experiences which can lead to conflict and I find that very few people are aware of that and are aware of managing the um, the conversation Um, it's much like um, Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. Um, a good host knows to keep Uncle Bob in check, and uh keep it a pleasant event.
0: did you have a large Thanksgiving as a kid? no no <laughs> <laughs> we We had various size ones of various years, but i I totally can appreciate that whenever we would go down to Massachusetts, it was my aunt lorinda who had to she was the host and she had to manage you know segment out the 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 tables and and all of that very very specifically because, uh, yeah, otherwise it was just fireworks. It was just fireworks. Um, I've been doing that a little bit on the Facebook page and it's, it's not easy to always, uh, what I've learned from part of this is that there are different reasons to hit the like button. Hitting the like button doesn't just mean that I agree with you necessarily. I mean, that's what people may interpret, right? That's what people may think that you're doing. Um, But I'm learning to love the ambiguity of my um, imposing my own meaning on any of the particular, you know, little reactions that you can have to a, a post or a comment. And sometimes I like the fact that they're engaging, for sure.
1: Acknowledge that they were there.
0: That's what I mean. Yeah, exactly. Like, I like I like the fact that they wanted to share themselves at all. Because most people don't, you know, don't want to. Or they or they think that if they do, it's going to get them in trouble. And I stopped using language on Facebook. And I'm doing this in my personal life, too. Like, in my real life. Um, but... Not that they're actually separate at all. They're the exact same thing. But I'm, I'm changing my language a lot now because I've realized that it's not trying to be right all the time isn't necessarily helpful in any conversation, right? And um, I think I used to fall into that trap where I would try to be right and try to phrase my responses in a particular way. And now it's much more open and broad in general where I can just, like I said, appreciate. Maybe that's the way I approach it now. I approach all of my comments or critiques or anything from for, primarily from a place of appreciation. And uh, even if I radically disagree, like even if I want someone to you know, um, change their opinion about something or if, if I got my way, that's what I would want. But it's more... Hey, let's let's have a conversation. Let's be in the middle of a dialogue.
1: Yeah, if you can't keep people in the conversation and you can't
0: This is live, so this is how we were known. It's not live. <laughs> not um, yet. <laughs> if you can't
1: keep people in the conversation, if you can't if you take a position that gets people to sh- shut down and not listen anymore then um you lose so you have to uh keep them there and engaged and um
0: uh, i see so many of the posts that i see on facebook actually do that right from the get-go you know it's like um this is my position and anyone who disagrees with this position can die <laughs> you know that's what i mean that's what's out there yeah,
1: it's it's sad. Um, it's like somebody walking to the town square and saying, "This is my position," and don't comment on it.
0: Or setting themselves on fire. Yeah. At that point, you know, like I don't even want to hear your opinion. I don't want to be around. I don't want to give you the opportunity to hear your opinion. So I'm going to set myself on fire, and make myself un uh, unavailable, radically unavailable. Yeah, it's sad there was a post recently that encouraged everyone to get, get out there and vote. And, you know, maybe halfway down the hundreds of comments that it got was someone saying, yeah, get out and vote, but you can't vote, you know, a certain way, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or get out and vote unless you're going to vote a certain way. And then I hope you die. <laughs> but so, um, so obviously, uh, you know, your a big piece of your professional career shifted in, in the year 2000, you had a store on main street for a very long time. You were a sort of, a, you were pre, not only present in that store, but you were present with events. Like I remember you throwing events in that store. I remember you, um, I remember your windows, Your the, the window that you had in your store. And it was, it was one of the windows on main street as you were, you know, either window shopping or driving by that always popped. Like you were, you were very, very present in the community in that way. And, um, and in the last 20 years, you've, um, I know you've been doing a lot with new techniques in jewelry and new techniques in jewelry design. And, um, how has, how has not, this is going to be like a set of, two sides of the same coin kind of question. Um, you haven't had to put as much energy obviously into being a presence on main street. Cause you are not there anymore. Um, so that's kind of freed you up to do what, what have you been doing in the last 20 years?
1: Well, my store was a vehicle for me to tell a story. Um, and the story, most people have a store to. Jesus.
0: <laughs> You're a popular man. You're a very popular um, man.
1: i put it on airplane mode.
0: Next time they call, just answer it. And <laughs>
1: um, my store was a vehicle to tell a story about design and quality jewelry. Okay. Um, I did not open it to meet a need for what the community wanted. Um, That may have been a mistake. Um, I put a lot of energy into it, and I think, although Camden is a wonderful market for um, doing business, um, the direction I was going was uh, beyond this. It wasn't necessarily a main story kayaks sell a lot better than uh gold earrings
0: what's the story that you want to tell with jewelry or in that world
1: uh it's always been that uh there is better design there are alternatives to what uh the mainstream jewelry one can purchase at the mall um, and that people should stop and look at uh, what's appropriate for them, what's special to them, why are they getting what they do, what uh, is meaningful to them uh, and not necessarily what everybody else has.
0: So your uh, goal was always to make something unique? Or stand out special, special. What, um, one of the things that I've always been fascinated at, and it's still hard even to this day, like even to this very moment that we're in right now between you and I. And so again, I want to say thank you for like even taking time with me to do this because one of the things that I always appreciated about your jewelry was it had a quality about it. Like, almost an air about it or almost a mystique about it. And I don't know that if it, I've seen your jewelry, not in your store. I've seen your jewelry come into my store too, you know, but I've seen your jewelry, you know, in, in your house, I've seen your jewelry, um, in the context of your store. And I, I think the store, the way you designed it and the way you built it was just, um, it, it still looms in my mind because it was so well done. Um, it, 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 spoke a story without you saying anything without you even being there like okay. it's it spoke something and then the jewelry in the context of the store also spoke something so there was an architecture piece to it and then there was the specific whatever you were doing to manufacture your jewelry there was a specific uh look and feel to it that gave uh I don't know. It was it was smooth, it was silky, it was sexy. It was just I don't know, it was very well executed. And I was always impressed by that. And I, it's hard for me to it's it's hard for me to like get at what major jewelry um special even though I could easily into or immediately intuit that it was. And um You know, I've seen other jewelry that employed the techniques that you have employed. I mean, and I've employed the techniques that you've employed to accomplish similar looks, you know, whether it's um, like bead blasting or airbrushing or, you know, these various kinds of softening effects that you can uh, apply to metal surfaces. Right. Not to get too into the weeds, but I mean, like that's literally what you have to do right to to accomplish some of these techniques. And um, and yet, I don't know, it's something there was something special about what you made.
1: Well, I think uh, doing research is incredibly important. Um, And doing all the service work that we did, repairs and custom orders and appraisals, got to see an awful lot of jewelry. Got to see jewelry that was recently purchased. Got to see jewelry that had been worn for 30 years or for generations. And you see what works and you see what doesn't work. You see what's meaningful to someone um, that's worn it forever. Um, Doing, looking in books, the finest pieces, the pieces that go to museums are there for a reason. And um, then I just try to Pick up the essence of what made those pieces special and use the techniques that, uh, that did that. I think all too often in what's commercially available in jewelry, somebody is sitting in an office that says, how can we scrape a little off the inside here to give us an extra $10 profit and, um, make this worthwhile, um, how can we do this design and uh, that we can source our stones easier, or that will appeal to a broader market? And each time you're doing that, you're sacrificing something. And uh, I didn't have corporate shareholders to, uh, to that I was responsible to.
0: So that gets us into the whole. Um kind of volume game a little bit you know the question of um at what volume do you want to operate or at what scale do you want to operate because a lot of these larger jewelry companies that have their product either made um overseas or i mean there are some american manufacturers of commercial jewelry certainly um but a lot of it's overseas if you're playing at that volume and you know, where you're shipping thousands and thousands of the same thing and you are able to scrape a few pennies off um, because your goal is, you know, so much extra profit, right? Like that, that, that's your goal. Um, is it, is it, a, is it just a personality difference that keeps you away from doing ever wanting to be doing something like that? Or I mean, what, you're so far on the other side of that, you know, uh, you're so far away from volume and, you know, scraping a penny out of a project.
1: It is a personality. I, um, I started at the, on the craft fair level, uh, with friends like David Yerman. um, booths next to each other out in the field somewhere. And along the way, you have to make the decisions. Um, are you going to make the sacrifices to reach the volume? And I just couldn't live with it. It just bothered me too much. Um, you know, making the piece, handling it, feeling it, um, selling it to friends, um, I just couldn't sell something to a friend that uh, wasn't the best that I could do.
0: So do you, in order to accomplish that then, do you have to kind of make a decision like I'm going to sell to people that aren't my friends and that we can just deal with it on the back end kind of thing. I mean, is that, is that the trade-off when, when you're, the reason I'm asking all of this is because I'm, I'm going through this right now. Not that what I'm realizing is for me and you and I probably have a similar bent this way. I don't like the volume game. You know, I might like the fact that Walmart sells cat litter at, you know, 50 cents less <laughs> or whatever, or, or, or the fact that on Amazon, you can actually get cat litter delivered to you cheaper from Texas than you can even just driving down to Hannaford and buying it. Um, I might like that from a sort of day to day, what would you call it? Toiletries kind of thing, but in terms of getting behind something, putting it out there in the world I want to I I don't want to see it again you know what I mean like I want it to be so well built that it just stays well built and and functions as it's supposed to function uh, for the longevity
1: along the way I've always had the dream of how can you create a um, well-built item of appropriate materials at a price that uh, is favorable and gives good value to the masses. Um, In gold and diamonds, that's really hard. Um, And um, in other materials, you might be able to do that i in my world um, we've always had to work with people from away in Camden. you can't really find the resources to get a lot of things done, so we were always on the phone or in the mail doing business with people from away, um, suppliers uh customers uh craftsmen were doing work for us um, that were away. And I learned that uh, Portland, Maine is away. So is Cleveland and New York, and so is Tokyo or uh, Hong Kong or Thailand. and going to um, jewelry events and gemstone events around in different places. You learned that the craftsmen, that the people who are doing special things came from all over the world. And so now my resources, the people I go to, are in the far corners of the world. Often they're hidden away in a little community like Camden, uh, doing their thing that's extraordinary. And um, I keep up with them uh, through phone and Facebook and Email and we share our ideas, and even with COVID, we continue to communicate.
0: Do you, um, do you? Your story about David Yurman hit me particularly um, because obviously he blew up. He
1: did. Um, he started off making brass belt buckles and really sculptural stuff, um, and along the way, decided he wanted to sell to department stores um and made the concessions necessary to do that nearly went broke along the way um trying to please them with what they needed and uh finally built a volume and a a following that was great enough that he could pursue his style his uh desires and uh has done very well at it. Um, He has the good fortune of, in many ways, being a little more distant from the customer in that he can work with the other designers, he can work with uh, the accountants, he can work with the marketing people, he can work with the uh, advertising department and pursue a dream, a reality that's his without... Too much of the, uh, the direct involvement with the ultimate consumer.
0: It it's sort of like. Now, did you ever feel like Etienne Perret became a brand the way David Yerman became a brand, or was was Etienne Perret like the name, which you know was plastered around a lot of places? Um, was that something that uh, just always remained you?
1: Um. There are two examples that are kind of funny. One is that uh, I used to go out and travel the country a lot. And uh, it became, I noticed that when I'd walk into a jewelry store that I'd never been in, that
0: people would say, hello,
1: Etienne. And that was like, whoa, that's I can't go name, incognito. Your, yeah, anymore. your
0: name transcended your, uh, or your brand transcended you a little bit there. Or
1: me. I transcended.
0: You transcended yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sure.
1: The other thing is years ago, we were very involved with the uh, World Gold Council and um, De Beers. Okay. Hanging on to their marketing programs, which were quite extraordinary at the time. I did a pendant with a round sphere with diamonds set in it and i knew that in a way i had made it when i saw advertising that was for product that was a direct knockoff of my designs i thought you know this company specialized in making pieces that were similar to iconic jewelry and my fellow designers they featured the original piece and the copy, the original piece and the copy, and there was the original piece, my original piece and their copy. And I thought, you know, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm worth copying.
0: So does that, um, I mean, where does that leave you exactly? Because that doesn't take away like tomorrow, right? Where does that leave you in terms of your own desire to, Build something new now or build it in a different way?
1: Well, I'm still fascinated with uh, using new materials in new ways. Gold has pretty much been the same for 250 generations um, the same material, the same problems, the same people trying to figure out new ways to use it. Uh, we pretty much did the same thing until CAD CAM and laser welders came along that uh, offered us the opportunity to new do new things. But there are all sorts of high-tech materials that can be used today, whether it's cobalt chrome or uh, titanium or zirconium ceramic or today's synthetic diamonds that, allow us to do things that couldn't be done one generation ago let alone 50 or 100 or 200 generations
0: so you become interested in using those materials um, as another means of expression
1: yeah there's new things that uh, can be explored that just couldn't be done before Um, and to me It's like, oh, cool, let's do this. It's different. Um, It works. It solves the problem that I'm looking to accomplish as a piece of jewelry. Uh, One of the things I do have to remind myself and I've learned is that I move along that path much quicker than other people.
0: You're willing to let go of uh, other questions and concerns and explore new ones, whereas other people are still like attached and preoccupied with a. What squeezing out the last little bit from the last thing kind of thing, or what or what is it,
1: yeah, um people tend to want what their grandmothers had,
0: and so, oh, so you're talking about even the consumer, I was thinking about the other other designers in the jewelry world, but even the consumer uh, the you consumer know, yeah. even the customers are are very much uh attached I mean, there's a whole trend right now, obviously, and it's where maybe maybe we're at the end of it or maybe we're still in the middle of it, I don't know, but of vintage jewelry and of vintage inspired jewelry. Um, there's a subset of that movement that takes, you know, the vintage style and by vintage, what do I even mean? Like, what does that even mean, right? Maybe early 20th century j- jewelry and um, and plays on a theme there where, you know, I've, I recently sold a hipster diamond, right? Which is a, a kite cut, flat bottomed, Uh, you know just a few facets on the top uh, diamond that has um, all sorts of salt and pepper in it all sorts of flakes of you know imperfections and things like that and those are in certain segments the rage and um, so there are all these interesting little market segments or movements or interest points that are sort of like grandma's diamond ring but just a little bit different You know, they might not be going where you're going like three or four generations out, but they're, they're playing on themes. Where do you think that, where do you think that, um, like, where do you think those two segments come together? Like where there are, there's what grandma had and playing on the theme. And then there's this, you know, major advancement that you're talking about, you know, where, you know, you'd get a large segment of the population to buy something that was made out of cobalt chrome or or um, gem ceramic things like that.
1: It's it's a mystery. It's everybody is swimming around in that pool trying to figure out uh, where their comfort zone is, uh, the designers and the consumers and. Um, some people want to do something that's different from their neighbors and others want to have, uh, what their girlfriend has except have two of them. Um, it's really, uh, it's all over
0: the place. So let's play a game here really quick about, uh, let's call, let's play a game called like, let's make up some stories. So you told me a, a kind of an interesting story the other day about engagement rings. Straight up engagement rings, uh, you know, Tiffany style solitaires, or maybe, you know, there's a few diamonds around, around the center stone, but pretty classic uh, at this point, engagement ring in our culture. And um, the story that, that you related to me was that you know it it what does it communicate right and this is the idea of the story the engagement ring can communicate several ideas can you elaborate a little bit about that
1: well it's a um a bit of a cynical viewpoint but in my mind a the function of an engagement ring what are you doing here
0: uh, So I'm going to interrupt your story for a second, but I really want to hear about it. Um, So here's the deal. So Europe is the reason why I have to keep getting up and hitting the record button. Because Europe, uh, there are some... Some obscure laws in Europe that govern the difference between video cameras and what that is, which is a point-and-shoot, which has also a recording option. And so they limit your recording to 29 minutes and 59 seconds because it's not a video camera. So that's why I keep getting up and and fixing it. It's so annoying. But, it's uh, yeah, it has to do with some European – uh, some VAT tax or something that they can uh, squeeze out of a video camera for professional recording versus these uh, consumer and um, even though they're nice quality, but these consumer end uh, uh, cameras anyways, okay. that's why I keep getting it okay. anyway. But yeah, so no, so I'm curious about, I want to do some compare contrast stories um, because ultimately I want to get to where you're thinking and what those stories are. But for a woman who has a, you know, a one-carat or a two-carat or whatever diamond. What's what's the story that's being communicated with that?
1: Well, it's a bit cynical, but uh, through the years I've come to see that the function of an engagement ring and uh, the diamond is for a woman to show her friends that she has found a a man that can provide well for her and the bigger the diamond the better provider is and if she has a bigger diamond than her friends then obviously she's a better woman because she's found a guy that can provide better for her than her friend's fiance can provide for
0: her so part of me wants to ask what's the non-cynical version of that story (laughs) but uh um yeah i mean there there's a certain uh, truth to that, maybe.
1: And for the guy, it's, this is the price I have to pay for access to the beautiful woman.
0: So who she, what's she worth kind of thing. Right. Interesting. So, um, I mean, obviously there are a lot of very genuine people out there that, that, um, would fall into buying a, or be interested in the mainstream uh, move in American culture, which is when you get married or prior to you getting married, you're in, you, um, you become engaged and the act of becoming engaged involves a, a ring. And, um, and so there is kind of like a, a subtle amount of, um, pressure, I guess, from our culture that you would provide a, a ring like that.
1: Well, a ring is a great idea and it shows commitment but the thing of the the dollars involved is um, a reflection of um, how far can I squeeze him? Um, how
0: yeah, broke that's very, that's very can, cynical. Um, <laughs> can he be? Um,
1: how much does he really love me? How far out on the limb will he go to uh, show his commitment to me?
0: That that would require though a, a, a certain amount of awareness of engagement rings and engagement ring prices, which maybe some women have. I don't know. Like I, I've I you know I feel like I don't want to say I was on the fringe in my uh, relationship in terms of uh, cultural fringe, but like when I got engaged. Now, granted, I'm the son of a jeweler, but when I got engaged, I asked. Um, I asked my girlfriend at the time to marry me with the original ring that I had given her in high school. So I had, uh, she had lost a, a, she had a little silver ring in high school and she lost the opal out of it. And dad and I found an opal that fit and we reset it and I gave it back to her when we were dating in high school anyway. So when we started dating 12 years later, when we were adults, um, I, I don't know, I just felt romantic in the moment and I just, uh, swiped the ring from her and eventually I gave it to her, you know, as the ring. And I just said, Hey, will you, will you marry me? And she said, sure. And I said, what do you, and then I, then, because I was the son of a jeweler, I said, what do you want for an engagement ring? You know? Um, and, uh, and she asked for a Sapphire. And so I made her, you know, a very basic, simple Sapphire, uh, ring and she was very happy with it. Although I will say this, um, a few years went by. We were married at this point. A few years went by. And I had... Um, I took, I had taken this place over. And I had the opportunity to... You know, get her a, a nice diamond. And it's not the biggest diamond in the world. But it's a very, very nice diamond. And um, of all the diamonds that I've seen. I mean, it's very beautiful. And uh, she didn't say no when I offered it to her. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think there and she wears that she wears that ring she doesn't wear the silver ring that i gave her uh she doesn't and she doesn't wear that original engagement ring i made for her she wears the ring that i bought for her And I mean and granted i think there's no question i just on a level of beauty there's no question which ring is most is the most beautiful and there's also no question which ring is the most expensive and um so i don't know how that plays in with uh with the story you told
1: I'm not sure, and you're you're an exception in that um, most of her friends know that you're a jeweler and that you could give her a bigger one. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. It puts you in a different position, right? But there is once we are beyond the basic needs of food and a place to lie down that's warm. Um, An awful lot of life is positioning ourselves in a manner as to how we um, compare with our neighbors, um, not only for what the neighbors think, but for how we feel about ourselves and it's a uh it's a tricky slope uh and i i don't have any answers to it but jewelry is definitely involved in that uh proposition there's no more condensed and intimate a uh, product no more expensive per square inch product than jewelry and so um People invest in that because uh, they feel good about themselves if they can have something more than their neighbors.
0: There's another trend, um, just, and it's very small, but I'm sure you know about it. There's another trend called minimalism that's out there, and it's um, it's sort of it came in response to um, conspicuous consumption where we didn't even know how much crap we were amassing and it, and it came in response to, you know, the, what we've inherited from the industrial revolution with, you know, products that are readily available comparatively inexpensive and to what we would have had to pay in the past for a book, let's say, um, or, or even a piece of furniture. Um, you know, you can buy a desk from China for a hundred dollars or less now, and if it was a of a different quality um if it was of a different quality um then uh I have to go deal with this for a second. <laughs> Sorry, yep, <Yeah>.
1: no problem.
0: <laughs> better
1: press the button and go
0: it's, it's amazing oh it's amazing My, oh, I don't even worry about it no it's his live. this is what it's, this is part of it okay I was going to I was going to it's amazing I love it yep. I was going to put sheets over the uh, the window the window for that reason that woman is supposed to come September 1st I love it and, it, and her work is all done so she thought she could just come whenever she wanted. <laughs>
1: So where were we? I don't know. It doesn't
0: matter. But it, it just, I'm, I'm curious. Yes, it does about, matter. Well, I'm curious oh, about. Oh, the minimalism. Well, yeah. So I'm curious about, like, what I really want to get to. And we could we could go, we could take that little journey down into minimalism and talk about that. But what I really want to get to is, you know, on the non-cynical level um, of what an engagement ring is. I mean, there there is a very sort of maybe even boring way to read what giving a girl an engagement ring is about. I mean, there's just like the straight up facts, right? I mean, it, this is the cultural mechanism by which we, you know, move from a non-committed to committed relationship or from a non not completely committed to a completely committed relationship that is pursuing marriage that would set up the next 40 years of your life with maybe some kids and some travel and buying a house, et cetera.
1: But for instance, in many parts of Europe, a engagement me ring means a ring that's a band a narrow gold band right that's given and worn on the right hand until the wedding day you swap it and then you swap it to the left hand
0: yeah i had a a woman in from uh, paris the other day who was telling me about uh single stone engagement rings in france or single stone diamond rings in france are actually considered rings for old women that's what she was telling me. That's like she was like, yeah, my grandmother would wear that, but I wouldn't wear that. Not as a young lady. We would like maybe multiple stones, you know, for our engagement ring, but not a single stone ring. That to her was uh, a a grandmother's uh, ring.
1: Yeah, if you go in Europe, in Switzerland or Germany, and look at your main street jewelers, they'll have engagement rings in the window, and there'll be diamonds there, like. 10 points 20 points big ones will be 30 points
0: right so we have we've we've played this entirely differently here in this country and, and, and is that the uh, i mean are we seeing like the effect of capitalism on the diamond uh, the engagement ring culture is that what we're seeing where there is a bit of a race to get ahead or a race to signal that you know we you know we have more than you do kind of thing
1: yeah, I think it falls into the similar category as how big a house or what kind of car you have or um, the brand of shoes you wear. I don't see, you know, two hundred dollar shoes getting you to the end of the uh, race quicker than. Uh, $50 shoes.
0: So in minimalism, it's sort of the opposite of the question. Isn't like how much you have or how big it is. It's how much do you love it? And everything that you don't love sort of falls away from that. So Marie Kondo would be a, a, the, a latest expression of, um, and sort of a, she's a, a I believe she's Japanese, but she, um, you know, she talks about, you know, if you pick up an item in your house and, you know, you ask the question, does it bring you joy? And you make a decision of whether or not to keep it based on that. and and then what ends up happening if you apply her method is that lots of things disappear <laughs> out of your life. And um minimalism, which existed prior to her or in a different vein from her, although I think there's tons of crossover, um, started with just this notion of of a recognition of conspicuous consumption and the fact that we were doing a lot of this you know, keeping up with the Joneses or comparing or trying to have a nicer car or more stuff or, you know, um, afford the, the next level of whatever it was. Um, it, it was a response to that. And it was to say, you know, like none of that in and of itself makes you happy. And so what is going to make you happy is, you know, more knowing who you are and, and obviously we need things in life you you can't get through life without some stuff you need stuff in your life but really based on knowing who you are limiting your life making a choice to limit your life to those things that actually help you live you know in a in a good manner or or happy
1: i agree and it brings me back to uh, a really relevant question to living here in Camden on the ocean and um, experiencing the water and uh, the difference between the 200-foot yacht, which is air-conditioned with stabilizers and crew and covered, or Sam Manning and Susan out there in the dory rowing every day where you feel the waves and you Feel the rain and uh you feel the water uh, which is a truer way
0: to experience being on the water well, for me, I can't uh imagine that that's an the way you set the question up. I can't imagine um I don't know what perspective it would take to feel like the yacht was, um, the right way. And in the sense of like, when, when you're talking about someone who's ultra wealthy, right, there is a kind of a, a perspective that they have in life that I just haven't, I personally don't have any access to, um, or I haven't yet, I haven't spent any time contemplating it either. Right. Maybe partially because I have no ambitions of becoming ultra wealthy or also, I just have no, that's never been an interesting thing to me personally, but, um, but I do know from the process of, um, becoming, I'd say financially responsible that, um, I have interacted with people who are, um, much more wealthy than I am. Um, and even their perspective on things has been very educational for me where the, the dollar amount doesn't matter. What, you, know, some, you know, when it, when you're talking about relative scale and you have so much money, then dollar amounts don't mean as much. So the the yacht could feel to that person like the dinghy or the dory or whatever.
1: Well, for most people with yachts, when they go somewhere, they're tying up next to somebody that has a bigger yacht.
0: Right. <laughs> Right. So then you get back into this, you know, this issue. But I mean, yeah. So, you have you'd have to address minimalism on it's going to be very relative to where you are.
1: Well, it's a big question. Um, It brings me back to uh, Thoreau. Uh, He talked of the simple life of the cabin on the water and then went back to the estate uh, in Boston. Um it's easy to move into a mini home when uh you have a stock portfolio
0: yeah well that that was the interesting thing with a couple of the people that promoted minimalism was you know they said, well, we worked on Wall Street for so many years and then we got sick of it and then uh and then we decided to be minimalists and it's like well there's a an interesting amount of stuff you don't need if you have a certain amount of money. Right um, now, granted, I think that people who maybe are a lot less well off economically m- would have more money if they bought less. I mean, that's certainly true. But also, I don't know. It's an interesting. Everyone has such a different relationship with money and stuff, so it's, it's a hard. It's hard to assess. You know, I, I per, personally, I can't see that there's a right answer. I I, I could see that there is. A um, you know, because there might be a little old grandma out there who just loves all her knickknacks and spends all her free money on you know all her extra cash on on knickknacks and fills her house with knickknacks. So you know, and she could be full of joy. You know, I, I met a few of those in my uh, travels. But uh,
1: um, I've had the opportunity to travel and um, run into friends, have friends that came from comfortable first world living that now live in shacks with a dirt floor and maybe a toilet, maybe not, and uh, raising children that way. And um, it's quite a choice to make when you could, in fact, have that air-conditioned car and go to a job in an air-conditioned building and have all the food, you can choose anything you want in the grocery store, to uh, living on rice and beans uh, in a shack. Not many people can make that choice, uh, go that direction, to really go minimal.
0: Well, it seems like it seems like um, that gets us back to, you know uh, right right back to the beginning of the conversation, which was about um, comfort zone. And most people receive their definition of what's comfortable from their community, and then they just kind of stay there. You know the the nomadic traveler or the 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 someone who's willing to go on a mission or a journey across the world. Um, those are people that are very few and far between. So they're the most people stay right in their box most of uh, most of their life, for sure. And so um, so yeah. So that's interesting. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna call this and okay. uh, and because uh, apparently. People don't I even put an extra sign on the door that said close today see you tomorrow to even though it's a Tuesday and we're not open on Tuesdays anyway um, but that apparently didn't even matter so we're gonna we're gonna try to help someone here <laughs> Well, um,
1: let's do this again and we can do it at night when there's a
0: uh, we should nobody knocking we at your should door. very good All right. yeah thank you Great. so much uh, for uh exploring some of this these ideas with me and giving a clue to anyone who w- watches this what um you know someone who's lived here uh for 50 years is uh is um doing with their life and spending their time thinking and, and working on so thank you it's so much. it's a
1: pleasure uh, thanks for inviting me okay.